Amen. Thank you, praise team. Good to see you, everybody okay? Hey, give me a big Texas tick. Oh, well, okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I'll get to that in a minute, man. Glad you're here in the Lord's house today. Welcome. I'm preaching through the book of 2 Timothy. Today we're in chapter 2. Uh, the series is entitled Keep the Faith. And today we're going to talk about fatherly advice. Uh, notice how this book begins in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from the God, God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, notice how he starts chapter 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Timothy was Paul's son. Now, not literally, but he was Paul's son in the faith. We need to remember that 2 Timothy gives us the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul. He was chained in a Roman prison cell only days or weeks away from his execution. The backdrop of, backdrop of this entire letter is one of persecution and impending martyrdom. Those were days of extreme danger for believers in Jesus Christ. Christians were being rounded up, imprisoned, and even executed. And it seems as we read 2 Timothy that, that Paul was a little bit concerned about his son in the faith. He was concerned about Timothy's courage and his stamina. Paul himself is about to exit the scene. And Timothy was about to become the targeted leader of the church. And the Apostle Paul was concerned that his son in the faith might falter in the face of adversity. So he wrote this final letter to inspire and instruct young Timothy to keep the faith. All right? And that's what I'm doing for you today. I'm telling you to keep the faith in good times and bad times, in happy days and in perilous days. That's really the theme of 2 Timothy. So let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, as we talk about fatherly advice. Here's what Paul wrote. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes According to the rules, the hard-working farmer must be the first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Again, I want you to notice how, how, Tim, how Paul began by addressing Timothy as his son. In verse 1 again, he says, You then, my son, and then Paul gives Timothy some fatherly advice. Now, how many of you dads have ever given your children fatherly advice? Raise your hand if you've done that. See, Ronnie, I'm, I'm both a dad who gives advice to my children, but I'm also a son who has received much advice. 
from a saged old father who loves his son. I can remember as a kid, my dad always giving me little tidbits of advice. And, and now, even as I'm older, he'll stroll down to the house and, and give me uh, advice when he thinks I need it. And man, I, I do listen to it. I, I can remember uh, some advice he gave me years ago. Uh, let me back up and tell you the story. I graduated high school in 1979. My first year of college was at Texas Tech. The University of Texas, Texas Tech. You know, I was watching that game last night, and Arkansas was getting pounded, and I was kind of getting down. But then I realized, you know, I went to Texas Tech. Why, why am I not rooting for my Red Raiders, you know? So my, my first year, I, w- I was at Texas Tech. Uh, Lucas, I, I, I actually played football at Tech. Me and some buddies would climb over the fence, <laughs> and, and we'd get on the AstroTurf, and, and, and we'd play football. So my first year was at Texas Tech. Then I, then I transferred, of course, to Hillsdale, Free Will Baptist College. My sophomore year, went to Hillsdale. And, uh, man, I'd only been, Jason, I'd been at, at Hillsdale for maybe, I don't know, three weeks. Really my first time away from, from my family, Lubbock. You know, you kind of get down after a little bit of time being away from family. Realize how important they are, and I was getting a little down. And then I got this letter from Valerie. Now Valerie had been my girlfriend for like two years and we were, we were in love but she, she sent me one of those Dear John letters but it was addressed to Dear Will <laughs> and she busted up with me. Man my, I was heartbroken. I really was heartbroken, lonely, depressed. So my dad knowing all this, sent, he, Wes he sends me a letter of encouragement and uh, I got the letter from my little mailbox there at Hillsdale, went in the gym, nobody was in there, I sat on the bleachers, and, and I read this long letter from my dad, and then at the end, he gave me some fatherly advice. This is, this is what my dad wrote to me, I'll never forget. He said, son, nothing is ever so bad that it can't get worse. <laughs> thinking, dude, thank you, man, you've, you've really brightened my day, dad, yeah. But, but it went on. Here, here's what it said. Nothing is ever so bad that it couldn't get worse or ever so good that it couldn't get better. You know, and I sat there and I meditated on that and thought about it. I thought, you know, that is my dad. It really is my dad. What he's saying to me is this. Son, there's going to be good times and bad times. There's going to be mountains and valleys. But you know what? You just need to stay steady through it all. Through the good and through the bad. Through the highs and the lows. You just need to stay steady. What great advice from my dad. You know? Man, I've, 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 I've drawn on that from the years and through the years. So that's what Paul does for Timothy here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He actually gives him five rules for life. They are so simple that Timothy could have written these out on, on a car. They didn't have paper then, so on a parchment or a piece of leather and put them in his wallet. Of course, he probably didn't have a wallet either. So maybe, maybe he could have put them in his belt and, and then drawn on these five rules for living in perilous times. Well, that's what I'm going to do with you today. I'm going to give you these, these five rules for life. And instead of making you write them on a card and put them in your... We've done it for you, all right? You've got a little card today. Uh, Keep the faith. And on the back are these five rules for life. You don't even have to take notes this morning. There they are. I encourage you to put them in your wallet or put this in your purse. And during difficult times, pull it out and draw on this. It provides a great recipe for the abundant life, even during difficult days. So, guess how many points I have? 
There we go. Here we go. Number one, point number one. In difficult days, number one rule for life, be strong. That's it. Be strong. Verse one, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This, this truly is a remarkable verse because it presupposes that we go through life and we're going to face a whole lot of situations that we can't handle on our own strength. You ever have situations like that? Days where it just seems to all fall apart and you, you, you say, I can't handle this, on my, I can't do this in my own strength. Well, you know, all of us have different levels of physical strength. Uh, some are stronger than others in this room. Typically, uh, most men are stronger than women. However, <laughs> I have ran across a few ladies in, in my life that are pretty strong. Uh, I saw a t-shirt the other day, I was gonna, Joy was going to buy it for Angie. It says, my wife is stronger than you. Yeah? And my wife, is buy that about my wife, because she's, she's, she's a pretty tough lady. Don't mess with her, let me tell you. But all of us have different levels of, of strength. Uh, some of you in this room, you know, maybe you do CrossFit, or, or maybe you lift weights, or, or do aerobics, or, or you run, and you're, you're in great physical shape. Others of us in this room are, are much weaker and frailer. Maybe it's because of, a, of an illness or age or a, a disability. Maybe it's just because you're getting old. Man, I'll tell you, I'm not as strong as I used to be, and it's simply because of age. But all of us have a level of physical strength that varies. Well, I think the same thing is true for us psychologically. There are some of you in this room today that are strong-willed and, and you're courageous and, and there is not much that can happen in this life that is going to get you down. But then there are others of us in this room who falter in times of trouble and we just inwardly collapse. That's why in a crisis, one person might keep their head about them and another person completely falls apart. But... Whatever our physical and psychological makeup may be, the Bible commands us to be strong. Be strong. In fact, that phrase, be strong, occurs 36 times in the Bible. The first time is when Moses is passing the torch on to Joshua. He tells him this in Deuteronomy 31 verse 6, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And then a little bit later on, Moses dies. And so the Lord encourages Joshua with the same words in Joshua 1. He says, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to give to their forefathers. Be strong and and very courageous. And then Joshua himself a little later on commands all of Israel with the same words. He said to them, do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous. Likewise, King David, when he was old and about to die, called his son Solomon to his bedside. And he gave him almost the exact same words. First Chronicles 28 be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged. 
For the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of God is finished. So be strong. You go over to the book of Psalms and there are many Psalms that talk about tapping into God's strength. One of the best or my favorite is Psalms 27. It begins with these words. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? What a great verse. But notice how the chapter ends in verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, man. The Apostle Paul in his writings frequently admonished his readers to be strong. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he said to the men, Be on guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, he says to all of us, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand against the devil. And having done all, still stand. Be strong. And then here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, he tells his son, Youth in my son Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Be strong. Now, notice the Bible doesn't tell us to be strong in the strength of our own personalities. It doesn't tell us to be strong out of sheer willpower. It doesn't tell us to be strong by pretending that everything is hunky-dory, peachy keen. No, it tells us to be strong in the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. You be strong in God's strength. Now, we can be strong in His promises, can't we? We can be strong because of His presence that is in us. We can be strong because we have the recourse of prayer. We can be strong because His perfect love casts out all fear. And we can be strong because we have the privilege of casting all of our cares and worries before Him. Church, listen, we can be strong in life because we have resources that this world does not provide or have. We have the resources of God. And greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. So I tell you today, be strong. What a good, that's a good thing to say to one another. Jason, be strong. Brent, be strong. Dundee, be strong. Well, you already are strong, are you? Be strong, man. That would be a good encouragement just to go around Ronnie saying to other Christians, be strong. Be strong. In fact, turn to your neighbor and tell them to be strong. You didn't do that very good to that neighbor. Turn the other way and tell that person to be strong. Be strong. Be strong. Number one on our list, be strong. Number two, number two, teach others. In fact, verse 2 is one of the best verses on discipleship that I think that is found in the Word of God. It says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, Paul didn't say to Timothy, Timothy, just go out and see how many decisions you can make. 
No, he's teaching him to go out and disciple others and bring them and teach them how to disciple others. Really, when you examine this verse, there are four different levels or generations that Paul is referring to here. He said, consider me the first generation. God saved me, Paul said, and God gave me a world-changing message. Level number two, consider yourself the second generation. Because you've heard me talk to you about the faith, Timothy. In fact, I led you to faith in Jesus Christ. I have discipled you. I have impacted you with the good news of the message. You are generation number two. Third, entrust this message to other reliable men and women. You go out and disciple somebody else. You go out and teach them to obey all the commandments that are in the word of God. And then number four, you have them teach a fourth generation. And in the process, there is a multiplying effect. It's just like your family tree. Uh, at every funeral, they, they uh, give a person's obituary. And it always intrigues me how many generations the deceased has left, especially if it's, a, if it's an older person. For example, the obituary may say she, she left behind five children, 15 grandchildren, 32 great-grandchildren. Yeah, That kind of amazes me. It's pretty cool. My, I got an I got a, uh, email from Aunt Flora yesterday, Dad. I don't know if you got that. And, and uh, she, she says in the email that uh, if, if Mama would have still been alive to, today, Mama would have been 110 years old. That's my Grandma Harmon. She, she lived to be 90. I don't know. What was she? 90. But, you know, that 94 years old. Wow. Yeah. That's a pretty good long life. If she was still alive, she'd be 110, and I'm surprised she's not still alive. because I mean, she, was, she was something else. Godliest woman I think I've ever met in my life. She loved the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? She taught her kids to love the Lord too. She passed on her faith. And you know what? If, if something similar could be said of all of us in a spiritual sense, because you see, we are links in the chain. We are the spiritual connection between generations both past and future. We are ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I honestly believe there is someone somewhere that you can influence for Christ in a way that will have ramifications in future generations. Because you are the link. Just, just as my grandma Harmon taught my dad to love Jesus, he taught me to love Jesus. And now I have the privilege of teaching my children to love Jesus Christ. And if they ever have any children... Well, that was a slam, wasn't it? Didn't mean it that way. I really didn't mean it that way. You guys just keep doing what you're doing. If they ever have any children, though... I'm getting worse, aren't I? Oh, boy. Hey... Time out. Let me get a drink and cool things down here just a little bit. You know, here's the deal, though. I, I know when, when, when my kids have, have kids, I know they're going to teach them about Jesus. Because Jesus is the most important thing in our life. And, and really, guys, it's, that's, what, that's what Paul is telling Timothy. You be strong. You be strong. And then you teach other people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, you're not going to like number three, man. <laughs> you're not going to like number three. What is it? Endure hardship. Verse number three says, 
endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Now remember this, the book of 2 Timothy was written about the year A.D. 67. The first documented case of state-sponsored imperial persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire took place during the reign of Emperor Nero, which lasted from A.D. 64 to A.D. 68. It started when Nero blamed Christians for the great fire that destroyed much of Rome. According to historians, Christians were rounded up and they were killed. They were tortured. They were covered in the skins of animals. Now try to imagine this. Being alive, covered in the skin of a wild animal, and then sewn inside of that skin. You're kind of like in a, in, a, in, a, in a cocoon there of the skin of a wild animal. And then you were thrown out into an arena where wild dogs would rip that skin open and devour you. That, that's what was happening to believers. Either that or you would be tarred and then set on fire to illuminate Nero's gardens. Wow. Hardship. Persecution. In his book entitled Tortured for Christ, Richard Wormbrand tells of spreading the message of Christ through communist Russia and Romania. For his faith, he was arrested, tortured, placed in prison. And in this little book, he describes many of the things that, that he saw happen to Christians in, in, in terms of being tortured and, and persecuted. He tells a story of, of one day being in a prison cell, and, and a fella in an adjacent cell stood up. He was a Christian, and he started preaching to all the prisoners within the reach of his voice. He was, he was telling them about Jesus and about the blood and about faith. The guards down the hall heard him preaching, and so they came into his cell, dragged him out mid-sentence, carried him down the hallway to the beating room. Well, guess what happens in the beating room? They beat him to a pulp, dragged him back to his cell, threw him in, bloody and bruised, slammed the door. Richard said that somehow he, he pulled himself up, he straightened his clothes, and he said, now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? And he finished preaching his sermon. Church, we are used to a nice, air-conditioned, comfortable, non-threatening, and non-threatened Christianity. I often pause and ask myself, Harmon, how would you do if the going really got tough? How would you react if, if right here in America we, we did as a country turn non-Christian? I mean, it's headed that way. What, what would happen if, if you were physically persecuted for standing and preaching the gospel? How, how would you hold up if they beat you? And how would you hold up if they threw you into prison? Church, do you realize that we are never guaranteed in the word of God that that is not going to happen to us? In fact, the Bible says the exact opposite. We don't like to talk about it or preach it, but Jesus all the time talked about being persecuted for his name's sake. He said, if you really love me, the world is going to hate you. You will be persecuted. 
I've got to remind us this morning, this world is not our home. We are just passing through. We need to be strong. We need to teach others. We need to endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then that brings us to the fourth instruction. Stay disciplined. We're not only compared to soldiers, we're compared to athletes. Verse 5, likewise, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. Now, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul talks about training and, and, and bringing your body into discipline and becoming the best athlete you can be to win the race. He does that in another book. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the athlete who keeps the rules. He says you're not going to win the victor's crown unless you play by the rules. So let's talk about that for a moment. This afternoon, my favorite football team, the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, okay, come on. We are going to play the Philadelphia Eagles. And I hope it's not as suspenseful as the last game the Cowboys played. But they're going to be out on the field. They're, they're going to be at it, man. They're going to be hitting and, and playing ball. And here's what else I know. The referees are going to be out there as well. They're going to be on the field to enforce the rules of the National Football League. Even though they change those rules every year, they have a set of rules, a rule book, and they're going to be enforcing the rules. But, but. What if one of the defensive linemen says, you know what? I'm going to write my own rules for this game. Huh? <laughs> uh, deflate the ball. That's what the quarterbacks say. What if one of the safeties says, you know what? These rules may apply to everybody else on the field, but they don't apply to me. Well, I do know that in Paul's day there were sporting events. There were the Olympic Games. There were the Isthmian Games. And I believe that Paul attended them. Uh, he was quite a sports fan because he uses analogies in his writing from the world of sports freely. And they had rule books back in his day too. Probably not as thick as the rule books we have today, but they had rules. And Paul is saying, just as athletes have a rule book they follow, so do we. As Christian athletes. And you can't write your own rules of the Christian life. You can't have your own little version of Christianity. Doesn't work that way. No, he said we are people of the book. This is our rule book right here. We read it. We study it. We obey it. In fact, later in this very chapter, he said this in verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved unto God. A worker that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In chapter 3 verse 14, he said, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Then he says this in chapter 4, verse 2. Timothy preached the word. 
Be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and turn their ears away from the truth. But listen here, Timothy, I'm telling you, you need to stay disciplined. You need to run your race and you need to do it according to the word of God. To follow Jesus Christ means that we must maintain the discipline of an athlete to the rule book. And our rule book is full of promises, commands, truths, insights, encouragements, and prayers. The rule book that we have is called the Holy Bible. And it teaches us how to live life. It's our instruction manual for life. And Paul says, Timothy, I'm telling you, you need to stay disciplined. Stay disciplined. You live life according to the rules. Cheaters never, they never win, I'm telling you. And winners never cheat. So let's live by the book. Then finally, I think one of the most important little instructions for a productive life is this last one. Simply work hard. Verse 6 says, the hardworking farmer will be the first to receive a share of the crops. So he says, we are soldiers who must endure hardships. We are athletes who must know the rule book. And we are farmers who are expected to work hard. And if we work hard, we will reap a harvest. Now, I've got to ask you, how many of you have ever had a garden? Anybody? Anybody? Raise, your, raise it high if you've had a garden, because I want to see. All right, balcony people. Okay, Gar- you know what gardens are? Hard work. Okay, gardens are hard work. Growing up out in the country in Midland, Texas, we had three acres. One of those acres was a garden. No, not really, just a little. We had just a small, it's probably about the size of this stage, maybe our garden was. is out back. And, and let me tell you, the, the, we had, we had uh, sandy soil there in in midland texas you know what that sandy soil is good for growing weeds weeds Uh, i called them stickers stickers they i don't know if you've ever seen these i want to bring some back from texas sometime they're they're great they're on a stem and there's these little sticker thorns you can jason you can take them take it throw them at somebody and they stick Woo! they hurt man yeah your boys would love them let me tell you but that, that's what that soil is good for, growing weeds. and It's not good for growing tomatoes and okra, and stuff, but that's what my dad wanted to grow. And, and so we had this big garden out there, and my dad, he was working two or three jobs, and mom was busy raising the kids, so guess who got to keep the garden? Man, I was, I, I was like six, seven years old, and, and uh, I'll get ready, it's coming, man. And my dad would put on these little, put me in these little overalls and send me out there at daybreak. And, and he, he, he custom made this little hoe for me. As a, he cut the handle down on it and it just fit my little arms. And, and he'd send me out there at daylight and I couldn't come in until dark. And about, about every three hours, about every three hours I could wander back to the house and I couldn't go in because I was too sweaty. I'd turn on the, the faucet outside and drink water out of the green garden hose. Well, maybe it wasn't that bad, but I, 
I do, let me tell you, I do remember spending hours out there hoeing in that garden and griping and complaining and, and hating it so much. And my dad, the little golden words, he said, you think this is bad, wait till you grow up, son. I mean, it's what real work is all about, man, you know. But you know what? Finally, finally those tomatoes grew and they ripened. And we were able to carry all these vegetables in. And, and you know what? We cleaned them up and we ate them. And all of a sudden it was great because guess what? We grew this stuff. I watched this stuff grow. I, I helped grow it. And that's so cool. I'm getting to eat it, man. But hey, it's hard work. It wasn't easy. In fact, there's nothing easy about having a garden. There's nothing easy about being a farmer. The Bible tells us, hey, you know what? As a Christian, you are like a farmer, and you need to work hard. You know what that means, church? Listen, it means this. Church work is not always easy. Living for Jesus is not always easy. It's hard work, but it's worth it. The harvest is worth it. Let me give you, in closing, let me give you one little snapshot of, of this hard work and the harvest that we receive. Um, I don't, can't remember the year, 1980. 83, we went to Fort Worth, Texas. I went there to go to seminary, but I got, I got, to, I got a side gig of being the pastor of the Western Hills Free Old Baptist Church. I, I soon found out uh, pastoring even a little bitty tiny church is not a side gig. Let me tell you, it's consuming, you know. So I was going to seminary, pastoring this little church. It, it was uh, right on the Interstate 30 there. Across from us was the Air Force Base. Church was not in a very good neighborhood, just a little white uh, church and and uh, on the other side of the parking lot was a little house and when I became the pastor the house was abandoned I think the only thing that lived in that house were some big rats all right it was pretty it was pretty bad but eventually the owner uh, that I never met went in and kind of fixed the house up and and all of a sudden there was a family living in that house the grandparents the parents the the uh, the the aunts and uncles and about I don't know there are at least 12 kids living in this little two-bedroom house. And, and the kids would all be playing in the, in the church parking lot. And so I'd come in after seminary school and, and do my studying, and I would always stop and play with those kids. And, and I met them, and, man, I can't remember all their names, but, but I do remember this one little boy. Uh, he was probably 10 years old. His name was Ezekiel. And uh, I don't know, something about Ezekiel, we just kind of connected. And, and, uh, but they all came to church. I invited them to church. They said, y'all come to church Sunday. And all 12 of them showed up. Now, my little church, we, we only ran like 40 people, and half of them were old people. I mean, they were old people, you know. And, and so guess what these 12 kids turned into? For Angie and I, a lot of work. A whole lot of work, all right? But we liked them coming, and they were good kids. And summertime rolled around, I started talking about youth camp. I was, I was going to go to camp that summer. Jason's been to the camp out there, West Fort Camp, out in the middle of nowhere. Boy, it's a rough camp, and, and uh, I was going to go and be the evangelist. And so I said something about camp, and after church, the little Ezekiel came up to me. And he said, I want to go to camp. I said, well, dude, come on, I'll, I'll take you to camp. I'll take you to camp. Well, he didn't have the 40 bucks. His family didn't have the 40 bucks. My church didn't have the 40 bucks. So guess who paid the 40 bucks for Ezekiel to go to camp? I did. No big deal. No big deal. I told him, I said, Ezekiel, uh, I'll pick you up at 2 o'clock. It's on a Sunday afternoon. You be ready to go. And so I pulled in the church parking lot. There little Ezekiel was standing out there. He, he had a little bag. And I looked in his bag. He had one pair of underwear 
and an extra shirt. I said, dude, is this all you're taking? He said, yep, it's all I need. Listen, <laughs> 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 we're going to be at camp for a week. <laughs> I'm thinking, dude, you need more than that. But I knew his family didn't have it. So guess what? On the, on the way to Bowie, Texas, we stopped at Walmart. And I took him in. I bought him everything he needed for camp. Bought him a sleeping bag and a pillow and toothpaste and a toothbrush and some extra underwear. Yeah. We get to camp. And guess who, guess who my sidekick is? <laughs> guess who my little tumor is? It's Ezekiel. Man, I, I, it was, I mean, good grief. I couldn't go anywhere without Ezekiel. And I'd have to, okay, Ezekiel, now let's go. You need to go take a shower, buddy. You're, you know, you need to clean up a little bit. It, it was a whole lot of work that summer at camp. But on the last night, during the invitation, Ezekiel came down and got saved. All that hard work, I tell you, it was worth it. That little kid's life was transformed. We, we went back to Fort Worth, and I could see it, man. He was a changed kid. He was always at church, loved the Lord. Then, then I, I drove to church one day, and they were all gone. The whole family was moved. Asked the neighbors, did you see? They didn't know. Nobody knew where they went. They were just gone. About three months later, I was in my office studying one day, and and I heard a little tap on my window, and I looked out. There's Ezekiel. He was on his little brother's bicycle. Much too small for him. I went out there and talked to Ezekiel, and he told me they they had moved, and he said, boy, I've been missing the church, and, and... in fact, I loaded him and his bicycle up and drove him back to his house. He was, they lived five miles from the church. He rode his bike five miles just to tell me they had moved and to tell me thanks. Thanks. Thanks for all you've done. Thanks for, help, thanks for helping me find Jesus. Thanks for helping my family. Let me tell you. It was a lot of hard work we did. Snapshot is worth it. Is worth it. Guys, I'm going to tell you, anything you do for the Lord, no matter how hard the work is, it's worth it. Because you're making investments for the kingdom of God and for all eternity. So here's my advice today. It's not really mine. It was written by a father to his son 2,000 years ago. And truth be told, it is our heavenly father's advice to his children today. Five things, here they are. Be strong. Teach others. Endure hardship. Stay disciplined. And work hard. For Christ and his kingdom. Because it's worth it. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that we would be encouraged today. To keep the faith. To live for you. Lord, there, there may be someone in this room today who's never accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. They've they've never prayed that prayer of faith. I, I pray that they would.